Welcome. I'm very glad to be here. My wife and I both, Laura, is here with me, and we're so glad to be here. We appreciate the congregation at Dalreda and the way you've treated Terry and Kim and their family and helped them, and they've uh, enjoyed being with you a lot. And I always joy, enjoy coming and being here. And, of course, Doug is a former student of mine and appreciate being with him also. One author by the name of Brooks has written this, A soul sincerely obedient will not pick and choose what commands to obey and what to reject as hypocrites do. An obedient soul is like a crystal glass with a light in the midst which shines forth through every part thereof. A man sincerely obedient lays down such a charge upon his whole man, the same charge, in fact, that Mary the mother of Jesus did upon the servants at the feast in John 2 when she said, Whatsoever he saith you do it. Whatsoever he saith, you do it. Where did Brooks get his concept of obedience? Well, probably at least in part from the passage we're looking at tonight, Matthew 6 and verse 24. As has already been intimated, the words of this are a part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. They are in a section which, where Jesus discusses where our treasures are stored. Whether our treasures are in heaven or whether they're really here on earth. You know, treasures may not be treasures in the sense of gold, but they are things we value. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about what is important for us. And Jesus says that we should value spiritual things, that is, those things which are of heaven, not the things of earth. And then he goes on to say, our heart will be set on spiritual things, verses 20 and 21, if you want to look at those. Our eyes will then, he says, be clear, that is, motivated by singleness of purpose, is what clear means in that particular passage. And then our body will be full of light. He affirms that in verses 22 and verse 23. And that is derived from Christ, who is, John 8 and verse 12, the light of the world. That is, we need to focus on Him, Christ, who is our Master. And in the context, He pronounces the words of our text for tonight. Listen to it from the New American Standard. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's look first of all at length at an explanation of this particular text. Please note on the screen. The term for masters that's used there in the original Greek text is a term that can be and is sometimes translated lords. And it means, according to Bauer's Greek lexicon, one who is in charge of by virtue of possession. And so your master is one who possesses you. Therefore, we're not talking about your employer like some commentators say, and they're commenting on this passage. Rather, it means a slave master who has purchased the slave as his property. You see, one can work for two different employees. He might work for one for 40 hours a week and 20 hours to another one. But he can't really be, but dedicate himself fully to two masters. For all of a slave's hours belong to, not to himself, they already belong to his slave master. They belong not to himself to dispose of, rather to his owner and master. And Christians are, you remember this in Romans 6 and verse 22? 
Christians are enslaved to Jesus Christ. As Hogner says in his comment on this passage, the point here, however, is that a slave with two masters uh, can do justice to neither. Truly to serve a master demands total and undivided commitment. Not so for an employer, but for a master, yes. That is, that's why serving in a proper way two masters is impossible. Crane has said the master had absolute control over every aspect of a slave's life. The slave had nothing to offer to anyone else for he belonged totally to his master and all of his time belonged to his master. It was unheard of for two masters to own a slave jointly. That is, I should say it was not unheard of. Once in a while it happened, but it wasn't a success. Say, for example, if a father who owned a slave died and then he was inherited by two sons and they tried to divide him up. But it was never a successful uh, endeavor because he couldn't devote himself clearly to either of the two masters. Jack Lewis correctly points out that Jesus does not say that a man ought not to serve two masters. He doesn't say ought not to. He says he cannot. The same idea is presented in James 4 and verse 4. That is, since each one would expect full devotion, such as in the very nature of the case impossible. Grundeman points out that in Jesus' time it actually did happen that now and then, as in a case that I've already indicated where a, a, a master dies and his two sons inherit the slave that he had possessed, that then they maybe would try to divide up the slave, but it never did work well at all. And generally what would happen is one would buy the half of the slave that belonged to the other. So he could give himself completely to his slave master, if you please. Now, if one tries the impossible, and Jesus says it's impossible to do it successfully, what happens? Well, Jesus tells us here in the text what happens. He says either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Note that the two affirmations are divided by or, but really they are a restatement of the same idea. Though offered as an alternative, the second statement is really just restating what had been said before. The New American Standards translation of the Greek text here is somewhat misleading when it renders hate the one and love the other. Hogner is right in his comment on this. He says, this Jewish idiom of loving and hating intends to express a matter of absolute versus partial. You have to do it absolutely. You can't do it partially successfully. In view of the degree of commitment of the slave to his duty, as can also be seen from the clause that follows, this use of hate is clear from a passage such as Luke 14, 26. Remember Jesus there says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This does not refer to hatred as we normally think of it. It equals love less in the context. Love less. You have to love him more and anything else less. So the whole thought is this. If you attempt serving two masters, it will be an utter failure. You will not succeed in so doing. In fact, Jesus restates the concept. He says he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Devoted means he will have a strong attachment to that one, but he will despise, that is, he'll consider a very little value the other. The bottom line is attempting to serve two masters is an impossibility. And then comes the application that Jesus makes here in context. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
The term for wealth here is mamona, mam, mamonas. It's found elsewhere in the New Testament only three times in Luke. And it transliterates an Aramaic term whose derivation is uncertain, but which probably comes from a root that means that in which one trusts. And it comes to signify, therefore, wealth or property. Note that wealth here is not necessarily wealth that's ill-gotten. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about wealth that you may have ethically earned. Jesus' words are concerned with property in general, not with possessions obtained by an evil means or by deceit. Now, note that Jesus does not condemn having property. Rather, He condemns serving property, if you please. He condemns having a second master, that is, one in addition to God. God is your only true master if you're a Christian. Compare what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. He says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. But notice, it is not money itself. It is the love of money that is making it your master. I love what Jack Lewis wrote one time. He said, Many a man is owned by what he thinks he owns. Did you get that? Many a man is owned by his wealth instead of his, him owning his wealth. Maybe it would also be helpful to remember that Jesus, what Jesus said when He talked about the great commandment of the old law of Moses. He said it was, You shall, not, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Matthew 22 and verse 37. That is, you need to devote your whole person to one master. He's talking about God. So Matthew 6.24 here is just a restatement of the greatest commandment of the old law. So Jesus is saying that devotion to God and wealth will work. There are two masters, and you can't serve them both. Now this is a general principle. It also includes any other second master other than wealth. Wealth is the one He mentions here. Any other second master which might challenge or minimize my devotion or your devotion to God. As Hogner says, wealth, it happens, is only the most conspicuous example of that which can distract from true discipleship. I would like to apply it, and Jesus would have us apply it, I believe, to sports and family and physical things, physical fitness or whatever. And as we move on in our lesson, having expounded the passage in its basic meaning, Let's look at where we have our challenges today. Where are we, point number two? Areas in which American Christians are tempted to render partial obedience instead of full obedience. That is, we are tempted to let Jesus be displaced as our master. Our master says in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek first my Father's kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these material things, that is, will be added to you, Matthew 6 and verse 33. He says, Put my things first. Make me your only master. But material and physical things clamor to be made first also in the society in which we live. It's a part of our culture, and we are pressed to do it. So first of all, let's notice that our temptation in the area of handling wealth as Christians. It's the same application as is in our text. You know, we complain about our economy. We have a bad economy, and it's true to some degree. I just saw some information in the last day or so that 
the average income of the American family has gone down in about uh, the last six years, about 7.5%. And yet as compared with other countries and other peoples in the world, we are highly favored. One study says the average home in the United States has more than 700 square feet per person, which is between 50 and 100 percent more than other high-income countries. Even in the lowest income percentile, American people enjoy more space than middle classes in Europe. Likewise, even in the lowest percentiles, ownership rates of gadgets and amenities are exceptionally high in America as compared with other countries even in Europe. The labor market in the United States has attracted immigrants from all over the world. You're very well aware of that. And its net migration rate is among the highest in the world. Here's what I'm saying. When you go visit somebody else, even in a European country, last I knew Europe was, I haven't checked it just recently, but maybe the fifth richest country in the world. And when you go visit Europe, and I stay as I will again, Lord willing, this November in the home of Stefano Spina at Catania, Sicily, while I hold a meeting there. They will have a house with four adults living in it, five adults, pardon me, living in it, and they will have one that is about half the size of the house that most of us live in when we have maybe two adults. They have a small apartment, and they have to make it do for five adults. And since most of us are comparatively rich, as I think I've just illustrated from one standpoint, have we de-emphasized therefore material things? We have not, unfortunately. One of the most discussed topics of any election in the last several years is jobs and security of jobs and the economy. Many times we ought to be discussing such things as same-sex marriage and abortion and homosexuality and so forth, but we had discussed the Dow and the NASDAQ and jobs. McKibben says, we have made the most important decisions as individuals and as a nation in recent decades by answering the question, is it good for the economy? And he is exactly right. And since we are comparatively rich, have our charitable contributions gone higher than other people around us? Are they higher than the tenth that the Jews were required to give in the Old Testament, for example, Leviticus 27, verses 30 and following, not to talk about sacrifices and other such things above the 10%. No, indeed, Wolfgang reports the results of a study done fairly recently on charitable giving in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont. That was done, by the way, in the year 2008. And he said only 3.1% was given to all charities by the people in those states. John and his wife, John Ronsvalli and his wife, report that in a recent year, $2 billion were invested in overseas ministries by all American denominations and Catholic programs. In that same year, Americans spent $8 billion on pet care, $29 billion on the diet industry, and $44 billion on soft drinks. Will you please notice that Americans have spent 22 times as much on soft drinks as on all overseas ministries among Protestants and Catholics? Doesn't that say much about our devotion or lack of devotion to our Lord? Indeed, Americans serve another master. But you say, but Brother Edwards, in Churches of Christ, we do a lot better than that. Are you sure? Over the last 20 years, I've held quite a few seminars on giving 
and our need to reach out in missions and that sort of thing in well over a hundred congregations where elders have asked me to evaluate their giving. I would go to the Bureau of Vital Statistics at the state capitol and find out what the average income was and then how many heads of families they had and, and do all of the figuring up. You know what we give across our brotherhood as an average? Well, the highest I've ever found in any congregation was 5.8% of gross income, way under what the Jews had to give. And the average that I've found in well over 100 congregations where I've done that kind of a study is about 3.8% of gross income. We too are serving a second master. Jesus says that is wrong, it is partial obedience, and we ought to quit doing it. It is not what the master teaches. But notice another area in which we are tempted. We are tempted to serve another master in the advancing of our careers. Now that's related to money, but it's not synonymous to money. Many members of the Lord's Church are talented doctors and lawyers and CEOs and uh, CEOs of companies. In fact, we have several of them here, I'm sure. And that's not bad per se, it can be good. It's not bad unless one's career becomes his master causing him to give 70 and 80 hours per week. And maybe he has a little time to attend the assemblies regularly, less time to study his Bible and teach it to anybody else, and little time for family and children, and sometimes the children therefore become unfaithful, and very little time for his wife, and therefore sometimes, unfortunately, she becomes discouraged and divorce happens. But even where the family is not destroyed, that kind of a family does not develop spiritually. That man could never be an elder, and what a waste of talent that is. Just a few years ago, this preacher did a survey of several hundred churches, this preacher, in all 50 states of the United States. The results were these of the congregations responding to me. 41% of those congregations had no elders and many of them had far too few to take care of the, the population of the congregation. And most of those, by the way, were older churches that were plenty old to have elders, and they're languishing without leadership. Certainly a part of this lack is because some men have made their careers their masters, and Jesus cries out and says, you cannot serve two masters successfully. You can't do it and be pleasing to me. But will you notice now a third area of temptation? That is our participation in sports. I like sports, and you probably wouldn't be able to tell it now, but I used to play quite a bit of basketball. Used to run a little track, things like that. I still love sports, and I follow them ardently. Some of you who are older, as old as I am, can remember one of my heroes way on back then, because I lived in Missouri, was a baseball player by the name of Stan Musial. And Michael Jordan, just in recent years, has been a hero of mine. But surely no one can successfully deny that Americans overemphasize sports. I'm going to take one of the best-known figures in sports today, the basketball player LeBron James. I don't have the last years or so figures, but they would be even higher. But Forbes magazine reported that he made 53 million counting endorsements between June 2011 and June 2012. Even though, by the way, then he was only in fourth place, not in the first place of the highest played athletes. That may have changed by now. At that time, the baseball player, the baseball great Alex Rodriguez, was eighth on that list. 
and he made $33 million a year. But who is responsible for a society where such stars make $50 million when the teachers of our children will do well to make $50,000 a year? Who is responsible for that? One journalist wrote just a few years ago, the enormous salaries earned by sports stars are chiefly the result of the willingness of their fans. I'm one fan, but you know fan comes from fanatic. And I'm afraid most of us in sports have become fanatics, at least some of us have. And he went ahead to say that it's a result, the situation is a result of many fans who are willing to pay to see them play. They can stop paying as much for ESPN and tickets to ball games and instead spend the money they earn on their children's schooling. Would you agree that at least some Christians overemphasize sports? What about the father who loves baseball and he wants his son, he played baseball and he wants his son to be a star and so he buys him very expensive equipment at an early age. He takes him to all grade school and high school practices. He even coaches him. He goes to the games with him, maybe missing Bible study. He takes him to major league games, maybe 300 miles away, and pays $500 easily for the trip over a weekend, while the father is contributing very little to his congregation's mission work, and he doesn't have his son regularly in, in youth activities at all. Is there competition between two masters here? Indeed, both father and son are more devoted to sports than to God. Shouldn't fathers and sons do instead what President Joe Wiley of Fried Hardeman University wrote in the Gospel Advocate back in August of 2012? Let me quote from Brother Wiley. I thought it was an excellent example. He said, My parents, Bill and Mary Wiley, he lived in Oklahoma, by the way, were consistent in making obedient faith a priority. Did you get that? Obedient faith, a priority in our home. When I played on a little league team as a child, my coach and teammates knew that on Wednesday evening I would leave practice early. Like clockwork, my parents drove up at 6.45. If you had the same time, you'd have to do it at 6.15, wouldn't you? My mother would bring a wet cloth and a plastic bag so I could wash up and a bologna sandwich so I could eat on the way to church. Missing midweek service was not an option. Amen. That's the way it ought to be done. Isn't that the way to teach children and adults that one cannot successfully serve two masters? There is no way. But note a final area, if you will, please, of temptation in our American society. It's in overemphasizing our family relationships. I'm talking about our physical family. Now, it isn't news to you that God created the physical family. That's found in Genesis 2, verses 18 and following, as you well know. Certainly He wants us to honor our parents. Ephesians 6 and verse 2, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. But He does not want us to love and honor any physical family member more than Him. Do you remember what Jesus said about that? In Matthew the 10th chapter at verses 34 and following, listen carefully as I read. Do not think that I, I, Jesus, came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Why, Lord, would you say a thing like that? Well, he explains. 
He who loves father or mother more than me, he who takes someone and gives more devotion to them than to me, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Will you please notice that Jesus compares the love owed to him to that given to physical family members here? I like whether, what Shenard has said about that. Jesus insists, he says in this passage, that absolute priority, yet it absolute priority, must be given one's relationship to him even over family ties. Yes, the family is important, but not as important as our one master. We can successfully serve only one master, and ours is Christ. And so he, becomes, he comes above parents. He comes above children. He even becomes above husband or wife. Will you stop and notice with me the principle involved in a passage over in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, where Paul writes of a Christian marriage to a non-Christian? And in that passage, 7.15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, by the way, some people misuse that on remarriage. It does not say the Christian can remarry. But I want you to know what it does say. It does say the Christian is not bound to do anything that would compromise his relationship to Christ. Because his relationship to Christ is number one and his relationship to his husband or wife is number two. Christ comes first. There is an undergirding principle here. Let me repeat it. The Christian's relationship to God is more important than any relationship to anybody in any situation. By the way, our young people I think have gone elsewhere tonight. But it says something to young people. It says being right with Christ is better than getting married. It's more important than getting married. It's number one. Don't ever compromise your relationship to Christ in order to get married. And number two, it says it's more important than staying married, your relationship to Christ is. If you have to, in order to have the right relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have to leave that partner that won't let you serve God correctly, then leave him or let him leave because Christ comes first. The Christian has only one master, and that one master is Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean where the rubber meets the road? Well, a lot of things, but let's notice a few of them. The Christian who misses assembly because of Aunt Sally's visit has two masters, and he's put the other one ahead of Christ. The spouse who misses assembly because her unbelieving husband wants to go on a picnic has two masters, and she's serving the wrong one, or he's serving the wrong one. The Christian who refuses responsibility in the congregation because the unbelieving parents demand more of his time than they should is attempting to serve two masters, and Jesus has just taught us it's an impossibility. Jesus cries out, that kind of thing is just partial obedience. And I don't accept position number two. I have to be in position number one. And remember, he is the Son of God. You can't successfully serve two masters. In conclusion, the teaching of Jesus in this text 
is crystal clear. He requires absolute, complete obedience. Absolute means unlimited. It means unconditional. You see, what we call partial obedience is in reality totally non-obedience. Let me see if I can illustrate that to you. I was raised on a farm in southwest Missouri. My father would sometimes leave and go for two or three days to sell a couple of truckloads of fat hogs at the market in Kansas City, and he would be gone three or four days. Let's say when I was around 14 or 15 and I was doing a lot of the farming on the farm, he said to me before he left, Now, son, while I'm gone, I want you to plant this field out in the northwest part of our farm. I want you to plant that 15-acre field in spring oats. And I want you to plant this other field over here in corn. And the third field, the one down south of the house, I want you to plant it in corn. Well, while he's gone, I think about that, and I decide that really he was right about field number one and number two, but number three, I think it would be better if I put some other crop there. And so I make the change. Did I obey him even in the first two? I didn't. I just happened to agree with him on the first two. I didn't obey him in anything because I proved by the fact that I took exception to one of them and did my own will, I proved that I would do that anywhere I disagreed with him. So partial obedience is really non-obedience. It's not what he accepts. God help us to rid ourselves of such defective, selfish thinking. You know where it's based? It's based in thinking we know better how to live our lives than God does. We may not intend it that way, but when you get right back to the root of it, it's arrogance on our part, spiritual arrogance, in thinking that we know better than God. God help us not to live in that manner. Theodore Monod has captured the full meaning of absolute obedience in a hymn. We're going to close out this session now by singing that hymn. I want to quote it to you before, first, and then we'll use it later as an invitation also. That hymn goes like this. Oh, the bitter pain of, and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me, I beheld him bless, bleeding on the accursed tree, and my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day His tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of Thee. Higher than the highest heavens, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, Thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of Thee. Indeed, when we overcome selfishness, then we will render, and arrogance, we will render absolute obedience. Let's sing.